How many of you have heard of the Rashomon effect? The Rashomon effect. That's perfect. I can say anything I want about it. It comes from a film in 1950, and it's a Japanese film where there's a series, there's an event that happens, and then it's told by four different characters, and they each tell a different story of what actually happened. So here's a, it's kind of this principle that when one thing is there, different people see it a different way. So here's kind of an Easter-themed example. Take a look at this picture. What do you see? A duck? A bunny. Yeah, some people see a bunny. Some people see a duck. Now that you know them, do you see them both? Yeah. So one thing, but you see it different ways. You may also remember another example is uh, the infamous dress that broke the internet in 2015. Um, So here's this picture, and... Different people see different colors, apparently. So some people see white and gold. Who sees white and gold? Okay, yeah. Some people see blue and black. Who sees blue and black? Yeah, so more white and gold. Uh, if you saw blue and black, you're wrong. Um, we have an optometrist on the patio after service. You can get your eyes checked out. So it's a simple principle here, right? There, there is a single thing... But when we look at it, we see something different. And it's very interesting, actually. Brain scientists have figured out that one of the unique things about humans' brains is that what we do when we see something is we actually create a story around it. It's as if we are designed to see stories everywhere we look. This morning, we're talking about a particular story. We do this every year. We celebrate a series of events. And the, the facts are simple. A carpenter's son from Nazareth rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. Those are the basic facts. But what we're going to do this morning is that we're going to see how the different people that were there at that event perceived those events in different ways. In fact, they told different stories about what was actually happening. And among their responses, we're going to see that there were both dreams and disruptions in play at the time. Now, last week, we finished a series in the book of Ephesians. And one of the main threads that we saw in that book was this idea, this incredible idea that God could take different people and bring them together in unity. In the book of Ephesians, we saw in particular how that was true with Jews and Gentiles, two different ethnic people groups that had had literally a thousand-year history of hatred and violence. And yet in this new movement called Christianity, those two groups of people were able to come together as one new community. How is it possible to overcome that kind of hostility and anger? 
Well, we might find some answers in the Palm Sunday story this morning. Because we're going to take two individuals. I'm going to introduce you to two fictional characters that I've created to help us get into the mindset of what people might be feeling. One of them is a young man, a a Jew named Yosef. And then I'm going to introduce you also to a Roman Gentile named Marius. And we're going to think about how these two individuals might have experienced the events of a carpenter's son riding into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. But we're not just going to think about their perspectives. I'm also going to invite you to put yourself there. I'm going to ask you, based on how they might be feeling, to start to think how you might be feeling, what you would bring to that event, what your background would do to shape the way that you told a story about what was happening there. Because this thing happened 2,000 years ago, and yet we're still talking about it. We're still telling the story over and over again. Something within these events resonates with us deeply. We're going to try to really unlock what that could be. Now, this story is told in all of the Gospels, all four Gospel accounts in our Bible. This morning, we're going to be looking at the version of it in the Gospel of John. And as a way of getting into the mindset of how John presents the story, we want to look at which events he says happened immediately prior to this event of the carpenter's son riding into Jerusalem. These might be familiar stories to you. That's great. If they're not, don't worry. Uh, You should still be able to get the hang of kind of what the emotions involved are. In the chapter prior to chapter 12, which is where our story is found, we hear about Jesus arriving in a village called Bethany. Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus comes there because he's been told that one of his friends has recently died suddenly. So Jesus arrives to Bethany and he goes up to the tomb where his friend has been buried and he calls forth his friend Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And he does. He brings his friend back to life. And the village is abuzz with excitement and confusion and and just overwhelmedness. Nobody can believe it. But one group, the Pharisees, are upset because they see Jesus as a threat. And if he can do stuff like this, they're terrified. So it's then that they make plans to put Jesus to death. Now, the next event that happens, according to John, is that Jesus comes back back to Bethany again. This had probably been about two weeks later. And at this event, Jesus came to a dinner party. He sits down and Lazarus's sister, Mary, comes in with this really expensive jar of perfume. And she breaks it over Jesus, anointing him. And this action just causes shockwaves in the community. One of Jesus's disciples, Judas, was in charge of the funds. And he was upset because he thought if he could have sold that, he could skim some of it off the top and line his pockets. The disciples were confused but excited that there was this growing sense that something big was about to happen. 
The Pharisees were even more upset. And on that day, they added Lazarus to their list of people to make disappear. So think about all of these people in the city of Bethany, outside of Jerusalem. You've got the Pharisees with their jealousy and their plots of murder. You've got Lazarus, who's just grateful to be alive. His sister, who's happy to have her brother back. Jesus' disciples with a sense of foreboding and waiting for something to happen. Judas with his greed and his grumpiness. All of those people were in the mix when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But we're going to think about two people in particular, two fictional characters that might have been there. The first is a man named Yosef. He's a Jew from a village called Nain up near the Sea of Galilee. Yosef came to Jerusalem that day with his family for the the thrice yearly, one of the high festivals, the, the feast that was going to happen. Another man we're going to think about is a man named Marius. Marius grew up on a, the island of Cyprus, but he's been living in Jerusalem for about the past two years or so. Yosef traveled a long way to go to Jerusalem. He's tired. He's hungry. He doesn't really have a great place to stay. Marius is a local. He lives in the area and he just kind of came down to the city gate to watch these happenings. Yosef is um, standing outside the gate. He's in the dust with the crowds and and the dirt and the noise. Marius is up inside the city in in an upper room area where there's a window that can look out on the city gates. Yosef is tired and hungry. Marius sits down in a comfortable spot. He's got a plate of grapes and a glass of wine next to him. And these two men watch as this happens. This is the story as told by the author John. I'll read from John 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. One event, two different perspectives. One moment in time where something happened, but two different stories that were told. Let's dive a little bit deeper into each of these young men and see what they might have experienced. Most of Yosef's family came with him from Nain for the festival. Yosef has a new prayer shawl. His grandmother made it for him. It's pretty, right? 
Joseph's family didn't come this morning, though, to, to see the carpenter from, from Nazareth. They retired from the journey. But Joseph remembered that a few years ago, this man named Jesus had come to his village. He'd come to Nain. He remembers it because everybody was talking about it. Joseph's friend Reuben had died from an illness. And Jesus came right during the funeral procession. But as they carried Reuben's body by, Jesus walked up to the funeral bier and he, he told Reuben to, to get up. And he did. He just came back to life. Nobody could believe it. They were all excited. And the, the elders in the town started whispering. They said, maybe this could be the promised one. Maybe now things could change. Maybe he would help to drive out the Romans and life could get better finally. But a couple of weeks after that event, the Romans came through collecting their taxes and nothing had changed. Life went back to normal. Yosef remembers that those Roman taxes has always just cast this darkness upon his village. You know, there, there'd be years where, where there was a good harvest and, and his father would say, maybe this year we could live a little more comfortably. And then the Romans would raise taxes. And once again, they would just barely scrape by. His father always seemed to be in a bad mood, always upset and angry. He thinks it might've started when his brother Tobiah disappeared. Yosef was only four, so he doesn't really remember many of the details. But he does remember that it was a really hard year for everyone in the village. And then suddenly the Romans came through and, and Tobiah was gone. And people say that his father had gotten a lot of debt and Tobiah was taken as a Roman slave. Times are hard. His grandfather sometimes tells stories from his grandfather about the days a hundred years ago when the Romans hadn't come yet. And Yosef longs for the day when God's people can live in God's land and worship him freely. He's been thinking about this saying from one of the prophets. The prophet Isaiah says this. He talks about, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk. In his paths. Some people say the, the latter days might be here. That there's a stirring, that there's a sense, and you can feel it in Jerusalem that, that something might be happening. Joseph has been waiting a long time. His village has been waiting a long time. His people have been waiting a long time for something to change. And now Yosef has, has a family of his own, a new wife and a young son. He longs for that day when his son can grow up in a free land. That's why he's here to see Jesus. 
He thinks if this guy could raise somebody from the dead, then, then he could do anything. Maybe the latter days are here. Maybe this guy could make Yosef's dreams become a reality. Maybe he could throw off the Romans. Maybe he could stop the taxes. Maybe this would be the last year that the Romans would barrel through the village, taking everything of value. Yosef has dreams. He hopes they could be fulfilled. Maybe Yosef's time has finally come. He sees Jesus now. He sees him coming in and and he gets so excited that the, the crowd has this buzz of energy. They're, they're yelling and they're screaming and there's branches everywhere. And so Yosef sees Jesus and he's screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, the king of Israel. This could be his king. And in that moment, he catches Jesus' eye. It's like Jesus is looking right at him and it looks like he recognizes him, but Yosef thinks, there's no way he recognizes me. I, I barely saw him those couple of years ago when he was in my village. But there's something about the way Jesus looks at him. Something about that gaze. Maybe his dreams will come true. Maybe Yosef's time has come. On the other side of the city walls, another young man sees these events. His name is Marius, and he carries his father's purse. He's sitting down, and he's uh, watching these things unfold. He doesn't really like living in Jerusalem. He misses the island culture of Cyprus. He misses living in a proper outpost of the empire. There's not even a Roman bath in Jerusalem. The prudish Jews would never allow for such a thing. He really dislikes those Jews and the way they always seem to cause trouble. Marius grew up on Cyprus. His, his father was an exporter. See, everybody loves the olive oil from Cyprus. And his father had a, a keen eye for business. He could recognize the wealthy elite. And he picked them out and he started selling to them, started making relationships with them. And that led to opportunities. And pretty soon he got this invitation to serve as one of Herod's managers of one of his households. It meant moving to Jerusalem, but Marius's mother had passed away a few years ago. And so Marius and his fathers made the journey to this backwater town in the corner of the empire and they thought maybe it would pay off. Maybe this would lead to something better. Maybe they could finally get to a better place. Marius wanted to make it big. He wanted to live in the center of the world. He wanted to live in Rome. All he needed was a lucky break. All he needed was the right chance to open up. His father had sent him down to the city walls to see what all this commotion was all about. There was some guy from the hill country that was coming into town and, and he's just worried that, that it might cause a problem. See, Marius had plans, but he knew that those plans were fragile. Anything could disrupt them. 
famine, war, insurrection. He knew if there, if there was one more major uprising in Jerusalem, the emperor would be furious. Herod would be probably executed. Anybody associated with Herod, their careers would be over. Marius had it all figured out. He knew how his plan was going to go, but, but he needed to prevent any kind of disruption for his plans to come to fruition. The crowd was making noise now. They were, they were yelling, and Marius kind of tried to listen in close and tried to hear what they were saying, and, and he got scared because he, he heard the words, King of Israel. Those are dangerous words for a crowd to be yelling. There was a king of Israel, and he wasn't this backwater hick, Nazareth. Marius thought, I have to stop this from happening. But as he looked, he caught the eye of the guy riding the donkey. And it seemed like he recognized him. But that, that was impossible. I mean, he'd never seen this guy before. Marius had never seen this guy. So I don't know how he could possibly have recognized Marius, but, but there was something in his eyes, some like, like he knew him. And it made Marius think of the way the Jews would go to the temple. The, the confidence they seemed to have that there was a God in heaven who cared about them. But Marius looked away. He, he broke eye contact and, and he reminded himself that was all superstition. There was only one God who mattered and he sat on a throne in Rome, not in heaven. And then Marius had an idea. Maybe this is how he could get noticed. If he could stop this disruption, if he could keep the peace, if he could make sure that things stayed calm, then people would realize how gifted he was. This could be his lucky break. All he had to do was prevent disruption and Marius' time would have come. That could be his ticket. Yosef and Marius each watch the same events, but they, they tell different stories of what was happening. They both wanted something from that carpenter's son. Yosef wanted him to to bring in a new age, to realize his dreams, to, to make the life possible that he always wanted. Marius wanted to stop him from disrupting the status quo, from changing what was already working, from interfering with his personal ambitions. And I wonder what we would have been like, what you would have been like, I think some of us are like Yosef. There are things in our lives that are not working the way we want them to work. And we think if we could just get to the next level, if we could just graduate college or get the job or buy the house or get pregnant or, or, or see our children in a better place, or if, if something could just change, then life would be better. We have dreams and hopes that, that we need God to make happen. 
And maybe we come to church and we pray for those and we think if we do the right things, then God would show favor on us. We think maybe Jesus could make our dreams into reality. Others of us might be like Marius. We have plans for our life. We know where we're going. Everything's in line. We have everything lined up. The 10-year plan is set and all we have to do is execute. And the worst thing that could happen would be if somebody interfered with that. A detour. Some unexpected set of events. And we worry sometimes. We're, we're here, we're, we're happy to go to church, we're happy to worship God, but we just don't want him to mess things up. We don't want Jesus to disrupt our plans. We don't want him to ask something more of us or call us to something different or change the way we see the world. We just want him to stay in his place and keep things running smoothly. What about you? Who do you identify? Who do you resonate with? What would it look like for your time to come? Five times in the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus' time had not yet come. We are told that when he turns water into wine. We are told that as he travels in Galilee. We are told that even the last time he was in Jerusalem, And yet right after the events that we talk about today, right after Jesus rides into Jerusalem, we read this in John 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Something big was happening. But it's a funny way to talk about it. Because if you know what was about to happen in that week, you probably wouldn't describe them as glorification. Jesus was about to be betrayed. He was about to be arrested. His sweat glands would literally leak blood. He would be tortured. He would be humiliated. He would be mocked. He would slowly die a painful and shameful death. On a cross. The hour has finally come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, this is the paradox of following Jesus. Yosef had dreams he wanted this man to make real for him, but Jesus instead would fulfill a different set of dreams. He would make dreams a reality, but he would give Yosef far bigger dreams than he could imagine. And Marius was afraid of a disruption, and Jesus indeed would disrupt Marius' life. But that disruption would be a merciful one. It would disrupt Marius from the path that he could see for himself and open him up to a bigger kind of life. Because about a decade after that fateful day outside the gates of Jerusalem, Marius and Yosef would find themselves both living in a city by the name of Ephesus. And they would be seeing their children grow up together. They would be part of a community where Jews 
and Gentiles ate together, where they worshiped together, where they cared for each other. See, each of them had encountered Jesus in a powerful way. And he had changed their life and invited them into a whole new kind of community where walls had been broken down and centuries of hostility had been erased by love and forgiveness. I want you to imagine yourself now. Imagine yourself there, where Yosef and Marius were. You can close your eyes if you want. Uh, if you're getting sleepy, though, maybe keep them open so, you know, I don't lose you. Imagine yourself watching as, as Jesus came into the city. Imagine what you would be feeling, hoping for dreams, fearing disruption. Imagine now that Jesus catches your eye and he sees you. What do you feel? What do you feel at that recognition? What do you hope for from this man who is God who came to the earth to save his creation? What is it you want out of Jesus? It's our question for this morning. What do you see in Jesus? What do you see in Jesus? Now think about the people in your life, neighbors, coworkers, family, friends. Think about what they might see when they see this man. Think about what background they would carry into that moment, how their personality and their experiences and their assumptions would shape the story they would be telling. And think about what they would experience when they met the gaze of Jesus. The life that he would want for them. The freedom and love and community that he offers them. Maybe even think of someone specific, a name, a face that you know. Imagine that person. Imagine what Jesus would want for them. Maybe consider inviting them to join us here in this community, to, to worship with us, to, to come next week to hear about this man who died and rose again and offers life for everyone. Maybe consider inviting that person to the Saturday extravaganza event where we will have life on the patio and the beautiful new playground and the joy of a community that is knit together by love. Maybe they need to encounter Jesus just like Yosef and Marius needed to encounter Jesus. Now, as we wrap up, I want us to consider one more character in the story. We've talked a lot about how other people experienced Jesus walking into the city, but I want to ask us to think about this event from Jesus's perspective. What would he have felt? What story would he be telling? What does Jesus see when he looks at the crowd and sees Yosef standing there in the dirt? What does Jesus see 
as he looks up in the window and sees Marius sitting up there watching him. What does Jesus see when he sees you there? What does he feel upon making eye contact with you? Love? Judgment? Anger? Disappointment? Sadness? We can't know for sure, but, but I have a pretty good idea of, I think, what Jesus felt, of what I think he felt. See, over half a dozen times in the Gospels, we are told that when Jesus sees a crowd, he feels compassion. So I think when Jesus rode into the city and he made eye contact with people that were there to greet him, I think he felt compassion for them. I think his heart went out to them. It poured out his love, his desire to see them redeemed and restored to live the kind of life that he wanted them to live, to see the kind of community develop around him that could unite Jews and Gentiles and anyone else who grew up hating each other. We're going to continue by worshiping, and I want to invite the band to come up because I want to invite you to, to think about looking in Jesus' eyes. We're going to sing about the king of kings. Dangerous words, even today, to think of someone who rules. And we're going to think about the mercy in his eyes, what that means for us, and what that might mean for the people we know. Father, thanks for this time, for the privilege we have of gathering together with people who are different from us, to worship the same God, to celebrate this one set of events that has resonated throughout history for thousands of years, and to prepare ourselves for this week of significant remembrances, celebrations, and ultimately the joy of coming back in a week to remember the resurrection of your son, Jesus. I pray for us that you would help us to sense your compassion for us and for the people we know that they would be welcomed into new life and a new community. We lift all of this up in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.